Welcome to Near East PolicyCast, episode 47, for August 23, 2018. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. It's too early to say how Bernard Lewis will be remembered, but if the Middle East ever finds its way to democracy, he'll deserve to be recalled as the prophet of its freedom. That was Institute scholar Martin Kramer speaking last month at a special forum appreciating the influence and legacy of Professor Bernard Lewis, the eminent Middle East scholar who passed away in May at age 101. On the panel were three former students of Professor Lewis. Kramer, the Institute's Corrett Distinguished Fellow, the novelist Catherine Nuri Hughes, author of the highly acclaimed historical novel The Mapmaker's Daughter, and Hudson Institute Senior Fellow Michael Duran. You will hear their full remarks and reminiscences of Professor Lewis, as well as their assessments of his enduring influence on Middle East scholarship and policy, after this. This is Sarah Foyer, SORA Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies that secure them. Find all our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. The discussion, which took place in Washington, D.C. on July 24, was moderated by Institute Executive Director Robert Satloff. His is the first voice you'll hear, followed by Martin Kramer. Today is not a memorial event. Um, I have not asked our panelists to offer eulogies of Bernard. Rather, today is a moment to, to step back and offer an assessment of what we have called a scholar of consequence, a scholar who has had such an impact in such a broad array of fields. At a moment when public intellectuals seem to be a rare breed, and especially public intellectuals that have such a constructive impact on the way we think of the world around us and the way we organize ourselves to address problems in the world around us, the way we think about our past and our relationship with other cultures and civilizations and how thinking about that past helps train our mind to think about the world ahead. I think we owe it to ourselves to take this moment to step back and to consider the accomplishments of uh, Professor Bernard Lewis and the life of consequence which he led. Ten years ago, the Washington Institute established a very special award, our Scholar Statesman Award, um, an award that was meant to recognize what we decided were the the two most important um, foundational principles of, of what we do and who we are, namely the intersection of scholarship and statesmanship. Um, and we wanted to have an award that would reflect those ideals. And so for our very first um, honorees, um, we had to hit a home run. We had to hit um, uh, honorees that would, without a doubt, um, um, make a statement uh, um, that reflected the depth and the honor that would go with this award. And so to represent statesmanship, um, we had George Schultz. We hit a grand slam. And to represent scholarship, Bernard was uh, kind enough to agree to accept the award, a double grand slam. And so um, to begin today's event, 
Um, of all the hours of um, all sorts of televised interviews that we could show, I thought it would be appropriate to show at least a brief snippet from the award ceremony of the first Washington Institute Scholar Statesman Award 10 years ago with, um, with George Schultz and, and Bernard. And it begins with um, uh, um, um, a, a cameo by um, uh, Itamar Rabinovich, who introduced Bernard at this event. So why don't we just go straight to the tape, as the saying goes. Another typical Bernard Lewis story from the lore. He was once speaking at an American university about Islam, and an angry student from the Middle East stood up at the end of the lecture and said, Professor Lewis, how can you speak about Islam? You're not a Muslim. You have not lived the Islamic experience from within. And Professor Lewis smiled wryly and said, by extension of your logic, sir, only fish could teach marine biology in this university. You no. might say that when you asked me to come here and have a conversation with Bernard Lewis, I think I said to you, I would be glad to come, but I would rather listen to Bernard Lewis than have a conversation with him. Because he is such, uh, I mean, he, he wrote a book not too long ago called What Went Wrong. It's a fantastic book. And you read the things that he writes, and uh, if you're halfway alert from page to page, you're just bound to learn a lot. So it's a great privilege, Bernard, to be here with you. And as a graduate of Princeton, I'm very proud of the fact that you are <laughs> a professor of Princeton. Um, in considering the, the lessons of history, it is useful, and I realize that this is an unpopular minority view, it is useful to look at what actually happened. <laughs> what we are confronting at the present time is a third deformation, this time of a religion, at least now. Now, in saying that, I don't mean to go all the way with some people who tell us that Islam is a religion, peace, rather like the Quakers, but without their aggressiveness. <laughs> no, I'm not going that far. But Islam, as we confront it now in these extremist movements, that is a deformation of Islam, no less than Nazism and Bolshevism were deformations of movements in themselves not unworthy. And I think it's very important for us to understand that the present time, and to define our policies accordingly. My optimism, such as it is, derives principally from the expectation of foolishness and error on the part of our adversaries. <laughs> uh, this has usually been our best hope in the past. <laughs> and one can see already that our adversaries in the present struggle are gearing up for similar mistakes and have made quite a few in the past. If you look at the writings and other pronouncements of Osama bin Laden, a man of extraordinary eloquence and frankness, you can get a fairly good idea of what their thinking is. Right through the 90s, he said, it became increasingly clear that the Americans have become pampered and effeminate and incompetent. The refrain was, hit them and they'll run. And everything seemed to confirm it. One attack after another, 
on American bases, warships, troops, embassies, you name it, with absolutely no response except for angry words and expensive missiles dispatched to remote and uninhabited places. What happened on 9-11 was the culmination of Series 1 and intended to be the opening of Series 2. That is to say, Series 1 to drive the infidels from the lands of Islam, Series 2 to bring the true faith to the lands of the infidels. 9-11 was intended to be the opening blast of that new phase. <clears throat> what followed that came as a complete surprise and uh, obviously threw them into complete disarray. Since then, they've been discussing it further and uh, they have watched the debate, the discussion here since then. What we see is the free debate of an open democratic society. What they see is weakness and fear and indecision. That's how it looks to them. And they are drawing the corresponding conclusions. And I have no doubt that this will lead them in due course to make further mistakes of the kind that the late Mahatma Gandhi used to describe as Himalayan blunders. Well, I can only say how much I miss such clarity of thinking and uh, uh, such acuity in our public discourse today. Um, so I have asked uh, three different former students of Bernard, um, three accomplished people in different walks of professional life to uh, to look at the question of uh, uh, Bernard's impact in different arenas, uh, in the world of uh, scholarship, in the world of public policy, in the world of, um, uh, of, of uh, uh, even literary achievement. Um, uh, they each have different, uh, different stories, different backgrounds, different ways to appreciate Bernard's uh, contribution as a scholar of consequence to um, our understanding of the world of Islam and of uh, America and the West's um, relationship to Islam. And I'm really delighted that we can have this um, um, uh, panel presentation today. So let me introduce our panelists and ask them to come up and make some remarks, and then um, we'll have an opportunity to have a, um, our own uh, um, uh, free and open democratic discussion um, with them and with you uh, when they're concluded. Um, first, I'd like to turn to um, uh, the Washington Institute's own Martin Kramer. Martin is the Institute's current visiting fellow. He is the founding president of Shalem College in Jerusalem. Um, uh, he um, is a scholar, of course, of um, uh, modern Middle East history and politics. Um, uh, his most recent book is titled The War on Error, um, uh, which is a, um, a pungent and prescient critique of how we misread um, we, the collective we, obviously nobody in this room, but um, how we misread um, uh, history and politics in the Middle East. And I'm really delighted that uh, Martin, a former student of Bernard's, is here to to offer his uh, uh, his remarks. Speaking after Martin will be Catherine Nuri Hughes. Um, Catherine um, brings a very different uh, life background and perspective to this uh, discussion. She is the author of the highly acclaimed historical novel, The Mapmaker's Daughter. Here it is. 
um, uh, which exists because of Bernard's suggestion, advice, and inspiration. Um, this tells the story of the most powerful woman in the Ottoman Empire under Suleiman the Magnificent. Um, uh, Catherine um, is um, uh, uh, on the board of trustees of the American University of Cairo. She's on the board of advisors of the Princeton Middle East program. And, she, and um, uh, I, I was very happy that Catherine accepted my invitation to speak today um, uh, because having an impact even so far as the world of fiction and literature is such – underscores the, the, the extent of Bernard's uh, consequence uh, and impact in the world around us. So I'm delighted Catherine is here. Um, speaking third is Michael Duran. Mike is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, former senior director of the National Security Council in the Bush administration, um, uh, the second Bush administration or the administration of the second President Bush. Um, um, Mike is an historian with an excellent book on Eisenhower um, uh, policy in the Middle East and um, uh, lives at the intersection of, of history and policy. And so I'm delighted that you're here to offer that perspective on uh, Bernard's uh, consequential impact um, uh, on our public discourse. So uh, with no further ado, I'll turn the floor over to Martin. Thank you, Rob. Good afternoon. I'm delighted to be here, privileged to be here. And I want to say a word also of thanks to Rob Sadlock. Rob was not a student of Bernard's, but he was a disciple of Bernard's. And uh, I think um, the Washington Institute distinguished itself over the years by honoring Bernard, giving him a platform uh, in the city. And uh, that I attribute first and foremost to you. So thank you very much. Um, I do not come to the subject of Bernard Lewis as a, uh, as a disinterested observer. Uh, I first met him in 1976 when I was a graduate student at Princeton, and he was a recently arrived uh, transplant from London. Uh, by progression, he became my teacher, my PhD advisor, professional mentor, and then a personal friend. There were 38 years between us, but the age difference never seemed to matter much. Instead, he seemed to defy aging. This he attributed to good genes, a daily walk, and a scotch each evening before dinner. Um, in 1996, I organized a conference in Israel in honor of his 80th birthday, uh, thinking it would pretty much cap the final act of his career. Uh, who would have imagined that five years later that he'd have two New York Times bestsellers and have become a true celebrity. But he didn't continue to speak and write simply because he could. Uh, true, no one had his combination of profound knowledge and clear exposition. But that's not why he refused to surrender to old age. He came up for another round and then another because a fire burned within him. That fire never burned more intensely than at times of war, in particular when freedom and democracy came under attack. I'd like to devote the few minutes I have to Lewis in World War II, the Cold War, and what I'll call, after one of his book titles, The Crisis of Islam, three wars that constituted for him a continuum. In 2006, Lewis, who was then 90, told an interviewer this. The most vividly remembered year of my life was the year 1940. I submit that 1940 is essential to understanding what drove 
Bernard Lewis. The year of Dunkirk and the fall of France, the Battle of Britain and the Blitz. The year of blood, toil, tears, and sweat, their finest hour. Lewis was 23 years old, already regarded as a prodigy, indeed a genius. One of the last things he did before his mobilization was to rush his doctoral dissertation into print. It was published in London in 1940. Lewis didn't regard it as a finished product, but he published it anyway because he wasn't sure what fate the war held in store for him. Lewis was always reticent when it came to the details of his five years of service. He spent some time at Bletchley Park helping to break codes. In 1941, he moved over to MI6. He described his task there as translating texts mostly from Arabic. For much of the time, it was just a desk job. Uh, later, some admirers and also detractors fancifully cast him as Lewis of Arabia. Uh, far from it. Only in the summer of 1945, when the war was almost over, did his duties take him to the Middle East. Otherwise, he said, I spent the greater part of the Blitz years living, working, and more remarkably, sleeping in London. Now, as it happened, uh, this was a far more dangerous place than anywhere in the Middle East. Um, 43,000 civilians perished in the Blitz. In terms of deaths, that comes to almost two 9-11s a month for eight months of almost ceaseless bombing. And yet, civilian morale held, and Lewis was a case in point. In his memoirs, he recalled that at first he took shelter in tube stations. But I soon got tired of this, he wrote, and decided to stay in my bed and take my chances. One can get used to anything. Uh, many years later, in 1991, he found himself in Tel Aviv when some Iraqi scuds fell on the city. Uh, the Israelis, some of whom were seized by panic, disappointed him. A few dozen reigning scuds, he said, were like a quiet night in London, 1940. In 1940, Lewis later said, we knew who we were, we knew who the enemy was, we knew the dangers and the issues. In our island, we knew we would prevail, that the Americans would be drawn into the fight, end of quote. But the war shattered the complacency of a generation. Freedom and democracy were fragile constructs. They had determined enemies, and in a moment's hesitation, they might be extinguished. In September 1945, at war's end, Lewis wrote a poem entitled The Dirge. It dwells not on victory, but on its terrible cost. I quote from the opening. In the bleakness of German plains, in the stillness of English woods, in the squalor of Polish towns, in the clamor of London streets, I see them die. I don't think Lewis often shared his emotions about these years, but make no mistake, the war that reduced much of civilized Europe to ruins, that left Britain shabby and impoverished and exterminated Europe's Jews became Lewis's prism on the world. He later called the, world, the war the seminal experience of my life. Of his own generation, he wrote that, and I quote him, their every thought, their whole lives, were dominated and indeed shaped by the titanic struggles in which they had participated or witnessed. And that was Lewis too. 
He would be ever vigilant in the defense of liberal democracy, lest it ever be threatened with extinction again. Nor could he forget that in freedom's most imperiled and finest hour, many Arabs had sided with the enemy. After all, he'd spent the war translating evidence of their collaboration. The World War was followed by the Cold War. Uh, for Lewis's generation, this gave rise to some ambivalence. He once described his own early approach to history as quasi-Marxist. In 1953, he said this, and I quote him, I grew up in a generation which was deeply affected by what was happening in Russia, and which felt, generally speaking, that with all the brutalities and crimes of the Russian Revolution, it nevertheless represented something valuable and significant for humanity. Bliss was it in that dawn to be alive. And I am therefore perhaps able to understand something of the attraction as well as of the repulsion of the communist creed. Uh, the attraction, he added, was that it had perverted to its service some of the noblest aspirations of the human race, peace, social justice, the brotherhood of man, and has used them with deadly effect. Uh, very early in the Cold War, Lewis identified the Soviet Union as the prime threat to the world his generation had fought to save. Indeed, for Lewis, the World War and the Cold War melded into one. Like the Nazis, Lewis wrote, the communists are anti-Western in the double sense. They are against the Western powers, and they are also against the Western way of life. In the 1950s, he later said of the early Cold War, the choices before us still retain something of the clarity even the starkness which they had through the war years. In this struggle, there was no guarantee of victory. Uh, I am by no means certain, he wrote in the 1950s, that democracy represents the common destiny of mankind. In particular, he saw the Arabs preferring the Soviet Union for the same reason, as he put it, that their predecessors had preferred the Third Reich. In the Middle East, only democratic Turkey and democratic Israel were reliable. The Turks, because they had long experience of Russian imperialism, and the Jews, because of their long experience of Russian anti-Semitism. Turkey and Israel were the forward positions against the enemies of freedom, deserving full support. Now in America, there were many who saw things as Lewis saw them, and I, I imagine that at any time, Lewis could have crossed the Atlantic permanently. But he settled late in this country, in 1974, at the age of 58, and almost missed his moment. When he arrived for good, the Scoop Jackson Democrats embraced him. But by then, the United States had already begun to roll back the Soviet Union in the Middle East. Lewis in America would be much more influential in defining what he once called the return of Islam as the next threat to freedom and democracy. That was the title of this famously prescient article published in Commentary in 1976. The Iranian Revolution in 1978 made the threat apparent in ways even he hadn't anticipated. By the time the Twin Towers came down on 9-11, no one had done as much to flag the danger as Bernard Lewis. In his first war, World War II, Lewis had been a bit player. In his second, the Cold War, a supporting actor. But in this one, he would play the lead. But there's a vast misunderstanding of how Lewis conceived this war. It can be attributed to Sam Huntington. 
Uh, when Huntington came up with his clash of civilizations, he credited Lewis with first use of the phrase. Now, technically, this was correct. Lewis coined it as early as the 1950s to describe the history of conflict between Islam and Christendom. But Lewis was uncomfortable with the way Huntington generalized his turn of phrase. On one occasion, he described Huntington's thesis to me as too harsh. And in one of his revised books, he replaced clash of civilizations with encounter. So it's unfortunate that so many obituaries focused on Lewis as the source of Huntington's concept, because he wasn't. Lewis did believe in a perpetual clash, not between civilizations, but between freedom and tyranny. The threat to freedom could emerge from any civilization, including, obviously, Europe's. And democracy could take root in any civilization, despite its origins in Europe. Anyone, he asserted, and I'm quoting, anywhere in the world could develop democratic institutions of a kind. Lewis believed that Islamism and extremes of Arabism were implacable foes of democracy and freedom. But he thought that Islam, the faith, wasn't antithetical to either. With Western, especially American, encouragement and assistance, Arab societies could evolve their own forms of democracy. Alas, if the Cold War lacked some of the starkness of World War II, this new and unnamed war, this crisis of Islam, seemed even more baffling than the Cold War. As Lewis himself acknowledged, and I quote him, it is different today. We don't know the issues, and we still do not understand the nature of the enemy. So was it Islam? Was it Islamism? Was it terrorism? Global jihad? We are weak and undecided and irresolute, Lewis complained, but I think the effort must be made. Either we bring them freedom or they destroy us. This is the voice of 1940 speaking. And in a simple reading, it seems like a jarring exaggeration. The Nazis could have destroyed, might have destroyed us if we hadn't defeated them and freed Germany. The Soviets could have finished us off in a morning. But who could today? Could any terrorist group, any Arab regime, or even Iran, come close to posing such a threat? No. But this statement shouldn't be read as a specific warning. It was Lewis's way of insisting that we must never take freedom and democracy for granted, as though they were the established way of humankind. In the World War and the Cold War, tyranny never surrendered. It only retreated when defeated. And unless it is defeated, where it still reigns, it might gradually, at first, imperceptibly, roll back that which, we, that which we've gained at great cost and ultimately confront us with the stark choices of 1940 again. Lewis, in the last chapter of his life, longed to see one more decisive victory within that civilization to which he devoted his scholarly life. He thought he glimpsed its beginnings in Iraq. Iraq, he said in 2008, when everyone had gone sour on it, and I quote him, is being ruled by a democracy, by a free elected government that faces free opposition. It proves what is often disputed, that the development of democratic institutions in a Muslim Arab country is possible. What, I, what is happening in Iraq, I find profoundly encouraging, end of quote. 
call it folly, call it hubris, call it the triumph of hope over experience, but also admit that it rests firmly upon the most fundamental belief that we all share, that all of humankind is created equal and deserves to govern itself by what Lewis once called the best and most just form of government yet devised by man. It's too early to say how Bernard Lewis will be remembered, but if the Middle East ever finds its way to democracy, he'll deserve to be recalled as the prophet of its freedom. Thank you. That was Institute scholar Martin Kramer. Next to speak was the novelist Catherine Nuri Hughes. Bernard Lewis had a greater impact on my life than anyone outside my immediate family. He was illumination. He was as warm as he was brilliant. He starred as my teacher and my friend. Bernard was my professor at Princeton, and he became my mentor too, but not within the walls of the university. I wasn't that kind of student. He wasn't that kind of mentor. In his graduate seminar on Vimy's, non-Muslims specially protected and taxed in Islamic lands, Bernard spotted me quickly as someone on a not long scholarly path. My interests were strictly horizontal, and Bernard did me the favor and the honor of taking that seriously. Being an amateur, even a dilettante, he said, was respectable. What possible fault in loving and in delighting in what you engage in? There is something, however, that you must be aware of. He specified by citing Milton, that one talent which is death to hide lodged with me useless. It was something he repeated many times in the seasons that followed. I started college late at 27, and I finished my master's in 1984. For those years and for many after, I was unmarried, raising my children, and it was in that long period that Bernard became my most trusted friend. When you sit down weekly for years to figure out offspring and wars, junk bonds and popes, annoying friends and promising partners, and here I too wish to expressly acknowledge Bernard's loving other half, Bunsey Churchill, the friendship that develops is solid as rock, and it yields. The more you reveal, the less you need to say. The less said, the more you dare to reveal. The result is trust. This dynamic is true of friendship generally, I think, but when the friend is Bernard, and it is hard to keep to the past tense, a person of such concern and kindness, the nature of the trust is hard to describe. Security with wings is about the best I can do. More than a few times over the years, especially when he was extricating me from some psychic jam, imagined or real, I remarked to Bernard that he was the least neurotic person I had ever known. The accuracy of that assessment was borne out by his having no clue what I meant. <laughs> about Bernard's stature and awe-inducing affect, like all his other qualities, it was for real, meaning he couldn't have helped it if he had wished to or tried. His gifts were so massive and various and conveyed in a syntax and voice of such grandeur that it could add up to something unnerving. Martin and Michael will remember, I'm sure, brown bag lunches in the days Bernard was anchoring the long table in Jones Hall. 
that's when you were sure that the less the guest speaker said, the more likely you were to hear something dazzlingly recondite and terrifyingly clever. Bernard was a showman. No one knew better than he the scope and surprise of what he could summon on the spur of the moment. And if you didn't happen to agree with every premise or point, of course, he reveled all the more. Who will forget the Mesa debate with Edward Said, assisted by Christopher Hitchens, and Bernard by Leon Whistletear? It was a draw only in the massive audience it attracted. Bernard towered. Two expressions of Bernard's friendship had an especially big effect on me. The first was his robust approval of the man I would marry. The other was identifying and locating me in the realm where I belonged, intellectually and creatively. He introduced the idea in 1997. There is a book to be written, Bernard said, about one of the most influential women in the 16th century Ottoman Empire, Venetian by birth, captured at 12 by Barbarossa, put into the harem, and assigned to the son of Suleiman who succeeded him. Her name was Nurbanu. Same as yours, Bernard said, and you should write her story as fiction. I pointed out that I'd never written fiction, and he said that didn't matter. I added that I'd never written history, and he said that didn't matter either. And then he said something really stunning, that we would write this book together. And when I asked how that would work, all he said was, trust me. And of course, I did. Years before, Bernard had written a few very brief impressions relevant to what Nurbanu's story might entail. Visitors to the Seraglio, eunuch habits, execution techniques. They are laced with his no-frills wit. Here is a little example. By ancient Ottoman rule, when a new sultan succeeded to the throne, his brothers were put to death to avoid wars of succession. The deaf mutes were used for this task, as well as for the removal of other persons whose continued existence was deemed unnecessary or dangerous. <laughs> Members of the imperial house were strangled with a silken bowstring to avoid the impiety of shedding imperial blood. Erring or unnecessary concubines were tied in sacks and thrown into marmora. He intended for this story to be written. For two years, all I did was read every book and monograph on Bernard's syllabus and shelves. For most of the third year, all I did was travel. In 2001, I gave Bernard the first draft, 500 pages. Without looking at it, he said, good, now write the next one. And when I asked about his part was when he let me know that I was going to write this book myself. He was launching me, of course, and he had been all along, but that didn't mean I wasn't very thrown by this turn. In the more than three years when I thought Bernard and I were, in a way I had yet to find out, doing this together, nothing about the book seemed a challenge. On my own, it was a different story in every sense. Finding the crux to an historical novel is a lot harder than I had imagined. When I finally did find it, Bernard endorsed, endorsed the idea heartily, and within days I was, yet again, on a plane to Istanbul to see the world's expert on the subject. The Istanbul Observatory was demolished three years after it went up in 1577. 
No one anywhere knows more about it than Ekmeledin Isanolu, who, before running against President Erdogan in 2014, was the founding chair of the Department of History of Science at Istanbul University. At the end of a long and unforgettable day in his, on his campus, what he left me with was pure gold. No one can say for sure who destroyed the observatory or why, he said. Meaning I can make it up, I asked. Meaning you can make it up. This is the kind of thing Bernard made happen all the time for history and for fiction. Creating this kind of mind-bending opening to whole new ways of thinking and imagining while giving unswerving support week in and week out, which in the case of my book stretched to 20 years. Bernard's light will never not surround us. This gathering is a perfect example. Individuals whose lives and minds have been changed by Bernard's power to enlighten and to cause us, each in our way, to do something similar. Till recently, it was understood that light moved in straight lines. Today, physicists know what students of Bernard have known for three quarters of a century. Light bends from Bernard to us, to our varied and fruitful understandings of the world. Bernard, a pilot light, our ignition, our guide. Thank you. That was Catherine Nuri Hughes. Next to speak was Hudson Institute Senior Fellow Michael Duran. Thanks, Ron. Thanks to all of you for coming. It's a, it's a great honor. Uh, I'm actually a little choked up. <laughs> Stop looking at me. <laughs> I didn't think this would happen. Uh, I apologize. <clears throat> anyway, listen, uh, let me talk about George Schultz. I met George Schultz uh, three times, and uh, each time I had lunch with him. Not me alone, I was in a group, but it just so happened that the three times I met him, I was seated uh, directly opposite him. And uh, Schultz and I had exactly the same conversation three times. Uh, he said, uh, you studied at Princeton? Uh, I said, yes. He said, uh, Near Eastern Studies? I said, yes. He said, do you know Bernard Lewis? I said, yes. And then he said, key question, how often do you talk to him? And I would say, well, quite often. He was just testing whether I was, uh, you know, because there are two kinds of people in the world, those who like Bernard Lewis and uh, and those who don't. Um, and so he was just trying to find out which side I was on. And once I was on the, the, the side that liked him, that was all right. It was a, uh, Bernard was uh, remarkable in that way um, in that uh, people of power and consequence wanted to talk to him uh, and to be around him. Uh, I've never seen anything like it. When one of the first times uh, I was in a public event with Bernard, we went uh, from Princeton uh, to Philadelphia. <clears throat> God, I'm such a girly man. You know, there are two, two. You two cannot say that. There are two. I have two great moments of, of personal awakening in my life. The first is when I realized that I would not be Clint Eastwood. <laughs> you know, I grew up in uh, I grew up in um, uh, in the Midwest watching westerns and everything, and I 
thought I would grow up to be uh, silent and strong and leading men into battle. At some point, I realized I wouldn't do that. The second moment, which I'll come to in a bit, is when I realized I wouldn't be Bernard Lewis. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, I went to this public event with, uh, with Bernard in Philadelphia, arranged by, by Bunsey uh, and her organization, and Henry Kissinger was there. It was a very large gathering. There were hundreds of people in this room, and we walked in, and Henry Kissinger immediately made a beeline for Bernard, and he, he knocked down people like a bowling ball knocking down pins. And I, I had you know, two reactions to this. The, the first was, my God, Henry Kissinger is short. The guy, he's, he's like about, he's about a little bit taller than a hobbit. And this was, this was amazing to me. But the, there goes that Kissinger chair for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I don't think it was. I don't think it was. Uh, I don't think it was in train anyway. Uh, the, the 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 second the second thing though was how amazing it was that Kissinger just wanted to to talk to Bernard about what was going on that day in the uh, uh, that day in the Middle East. So what I want to do today here is I want to talk a little bit about why he was some aspects uh, of uh, his greatness, why he was so great. Uh, but then also uh, a little bit about why that greatness is so controversial, why it will never be uh, recognized. Uh, I think it'll, will always, those of us who recognize that greatness will, I think, always be in, in the minority. Uh, so first of all, uh, the greatness. Uh, as I mean, anyone who uh, knows Bernard or is familiar with his work, uh, knows uh, what an incredible grasp of languages he had, and uh, what an incredible grasp of sources. I mean, he had a he had a, a photographic memory. Now that that meant not just uh, Middle Eastern Islamic sources; it also meant uh, Western history. I mean, he had an incredible grasp of of Western history, and it's that basis that allowed him uh, that allowed him to make these. Amazing comparisons on what I think is correct to say a kind of civilizational level between the West and the Middle East. Bernard had in his mind a very clear definition of what the West was, and he had a very clear definition in his head of what the Middle East was, based on the high culture of uh, uh, of both. Uh, uh, he had a clear definition, and he had an absolutely unrivaled. Uh, definition. I mean, as uh, as Catherine said at these brown bag lunches in the Near Eastern Studies Department, I, 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 the, the number of times I saw him just lay waste to to uh, uh, to people who tried to argue with him about these things. And I mean, very nicely. The thing about someone once said about Bernard is Bernard could stick the knife in and pull it out, and you you'd be sitting there bleeding to death. And you didn't even know it, right? Because it, uh, because it was so it was so incisive. Um, now he had so he had that incredible capacity, and then he had this historical framework uh, in, uh, in, uh, to, in, in, that he constructed in order to bring to bear that uh, that understanding. Um, some of you may have read I wrote a, an appreciation of Bernard after he passed away, um, and I noted in there that uh, that Bernard was actually a Turkish uh, a Turkish historian, meaning meaning he was working within a Turkish. Uh, nationalist historical tradition. Um, I think this is often people often miss this aspect of of his thinking. He he didn't. It doesn't diminish from him in the least. I think to say that he didn't construct this thing out of whole cloth, purely out of his own mind. 
um, it was the work of many, uh, of many Turkish scholars trying to understand the way the Ottoman Empire modernized. He brought his own, um, he, he brought his own unique viewpoint to that. Um, and he brought his own, uh, uh, his own unique, uh, his own unique skills. But it really is a, a kind of Turkish nationalist worldview. And it's based on the idea um, that there was a, the, the traditional Middle East and then the Western impact and there were channels of, uh, channels of borrowing from the West, particularly at the, in the beginning along the lines of the military and, uh, and technology and then later in the, um, in, in the cultural realm. Nobody could tell this story better than Bernard Lewis because of the depth of his understanding, as I said, about what the Middle East was and what the West is. One of, his, one of my favorite books... Uh, uh, of his is the political language of Islam. Uh, uh, have, if, if, you, if you haven't read it, uh, have a look at it. If you have read it, go back and look at it again. Uh, it's such a simple little thing. He just goes through term by term. Um, uh, and he describes the classical meaning of the of, of the uh, of, of the word in the Islamic tradition, and then the and then the the way the term has been um, revalued, I guess you would say, in in the modern era under the impact of the West. You can only it's it's such a, a deceptively simple little book. You can only write a book like that if you have in your head, um, as I said, this understanding of what the Western tradition is. And how it came in and remolded aspects of the uh, uh, of the uh, uh, of the modern Middle East. Um, now, uh, when I got to graduate school, I, I was actually never Bernard's student, uh, to to be exact. By the time I got there, he'd already retired, so I was his uh, research assistant for a while, um, uh, and I, uh, I you know I benefited greatly from my association with him. But I actually had fantasies when I arrived of uh, uh, of uh, correcting the Bernard Lewis record. You know, of, uh, of uh, I didn't want to. I, I was not a revolutionary. I didn't want to overturn Bernard Lewis. But I thought there were aspects of Middle Eastern history that the Lewis framework, let's call it that, um, uh, did not uh, do justice to. Um, but then, uh, and this is what I mentioned before about the Clint Eastwood story. Um, then I came into contact with Ottoman texts, uh, and I can I I know exactly the moment when I realized I would never be uh, Bernard Lewis or anything close in, in that regard. And that was a, I was taking a seminar with the great Ottomanist Halil Inaljik, for those of you who know him, um, and I wrote a paper on uh, based on uh, based on Ottoman on Ottoman documents, on land registers. Um, and I did, I tried to write a Lewis-style essay focused around the word uh, hirbe. Uh, hirbe is uh, from the Hebrew, you know, horban, and uh, hirbe in, uh, in, in Arabic, it means ruins. Uh, and uh, the land registers that I looked at had lots of uh, hirbes in them. So you have the name of a town, and then next to the town you have hirbe this, hirbe that, and so on. Um, and so, you know, this land registers were full of ruins, so I assumed that there were lots of ruins around. Um, and actually, uh, as Professor Inaljic uh, demonstrated uh, in front of all the other students in the, in the seminar, uh, uh, hirbay doesn't actually mean, it does, if you have a lot of hirbays in a land register, it means that there's, it's an era of great prosperity, uh, not an era of, um, uh, of, uh, 
um, of economic decline. And, and the reason for that is that when you have a, a, a powerful central government, then people move out from the larger towns to little satellite villages, and those satellite villages are known as Kirbe this and, and, and Kirbe that. And so I learned two things from this. One is, three things actually I, I, I learned. Um, the first is never ever build an argument around the meaning of one word, and I, I've never done that since, ever. Uh, I also, I, I took that into government, I never ever built an argument around a single intelligence report either. Whenever I see people do that, I always remember, here, bae, don't do it. Because uh, just one little fact changes and your whole argument uh, disappears. Uh, the second thing I learned was uh, study a, uh, an era of the Middle East after the advent of the typewriter. Uh, because trying to actually read these documents, uh, forget about the language, which is hard enough by, by, by itself, but to, to actually just read the, the manuscripts is near, nearly impossible. I actually developed a theory, um, which I'm sticking with for reasons of, uh, for, for needs of my own ego, uh, which is that there is actually no such thing as the Ottoman language. Um, that really this is just a huge practical joke that uh, Ottoman bureaucrats in the 16th and 17th century played on later historians by putting a lot of scribbles on the paper and then sticking it into the archives, thinking about the pain it would cause graduate students in 20th century America. Um, uh, uh, but the third thing I learned, as I've already said, is that I was never going to be an Ottomanist. Uh, because I couldn't read, I was never, I could spend my entire life looking at these documents, and I was never ever going to master them. Um, this is a very simple thing, but, but, but when, when, um, uh, it's a very simple fact, but it's huge when grappling with who Bernard Lewis was, because he didn't just know Ottoman, he knew Persian, he knew Arabic, he knew, you know, he knew 12 other languages, and he, and he really knew them. Uh, the number of, uh, of non-Turkish Ottoman scholars in America today who can go to the archives and do what Bernard Lewis did is extremely small. I wouldn't want to count them on my, I, I wouldn't want to embarrass anyone by saying how small it is, but, but it's infinitesimal, uh, uh, really. So, uh, you have to know the languages, you have to have the ability to master all of the sources, uh, and then you have to build the intellectual framework. Uh, and uh, th there are very, very few people who could do such a thing. In fact, it's unique, I believe. Um, now, why, why this framework, uh, why, why this is always going to be contested? We have to, we have to look at, uh, at uh, Edward Said and his attack on, on Bernard. And I completely agree uh, with Catherine that Bernard won the debate. In, in my mind, hands down, intellectually won the debate, but Said won uh, the politics. Um, and for that, you have to understand the United States and, and I think the modern, the, the, the modern world. Um, we are building in, in the United States um, uh, an, uh, an, a society that does not recognize differences in race, religion, creed, uh, and so forth, an ecumenical society. And the, the, the anthem of our age is, is Michael Jackson's We Are the World. Um, and Bernard Lewis had a framework that said there's a West and there's a Middle East, and they're different. And in order to understand what's going on in the Middle East today, you have to gr have a grasp of this difference. That fact alone, that already sets him intellectually at odds with the, with the prevailing ethos. What Edward Said did was a very simple political trick, I would say, or a political position. Is he just said, 
everything that you Americans know about race relations in America, about, um, uh, uh, about the relations between blacks and whites in America, applies to the Middle East. You just have to understand that the Muslims, the Arabs and Muslims, are, the, um, are in the position of oppressed black people in America, and Europe represents, the, uh, uh, represents um, uh, uh, tyrannical white rule. And all of the attitudes that you've had, you can apply. You don't need to know the details. All those, all those niggling details that somebody like Bernard Lewis knows, you don't need to know them. You don't need to know all of the history. You've already, you just have to understand the essential power relations. And any, any backlash, any movement of violent opposition to the West from the Middle East, you should understand as a reaction to the oppression of the uh, uh, of the European. That's a very powerful political message um, that is continuing to resonate. I mean, if you watch, you know, lately clips from universities and you see students in lectures in the Middle Eastern lectures uh, when people are saying things about the Middle East that the students don't like, and they all they start clamoring and waving banners and beating and, and beating on drums. There's no way to beat that intellectually. I mean, that's just a, that's a, a political position. And until, um, in, until, we, uh, in, until the field of Middle Eastern studies, and I have no hope of this at all, actually, but until it returns to an appreciation of intellectual values over these, uh, over these political values, um, Bernard Lewis's legacy is going to be, uh, it's going to be um, controversial uh, controversial to say the uh, the least. Um, on, uh, I'll, I'll bring my remarks to an end here, but I'll just say that I think the way Bernard dealt with all of this was exemplary uh, for uh, for all of us. He he ha he did have enormous. Anybody who knows him knows he had enormous confidence uh, in intellectual and 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 personally. He never had a doubt. Uh, he never had a doubt about. Uh, the the correctness of his uh, uh, of his position, um, and he wasn't he was remarkably unbitter about it uh, about about the 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 attacks on him, which were extremely uh, uh, nasty, uh, petty, uh, unfair. Um, I could go on with other adjectives, but I'll, st I'll stop there. But I'll just say that um, uh, for me, that uh, character quality, the, the backbone, the dignity. Um, I think that is one of the, one of the most attractive aspects of his, uh, uh, of his legacy, of remaining true to an intellectual vision um, when under um, unfair political attack. Thank you. Thank you. This has been Near East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Mm -hmm.